Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 288 of the podcast. It's September 13th, 2017. We've got a little bit shorter episode than usual. This is part of the conversation that I recorded with Dr. Dean Gruner. He's the recently retired CEO of ThetaCare. We talked, um, what you're going to hear in this episode is our discussion about accountable care organizations, other big healthcare reform topics. We recorded that first, and then we got into talking about what you actually heard in episode 286, talking about ThetaCare's lean journey and some of his reflections there. So I wanted to get that story out first, his reflections, and then um, this shorter um, 15 minutes or so on healthcare reform. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to hear the other one, you can go to leanblog.org slash 286, or you can find um, this podcast in iTunes, other directories. You can find the episode. I hope you will subscribe, and I hope you enjoy the episode. If you want to find the link um, to this episode, I should point out, you can go to leanblog.org slash 288. Dean, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great, and I'm looking forward to this. And first off, you know, I should say, well, I'm happy to hear you're doing great. Happy retirement uh, to you, by the way. How, how long has that been now? Uh, about six weeks. But who's keeping track? <laughs> well, and I'm sure there were, uh, I, 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 if I'd asked that same question back when you were working, I probably would have gotten uh, the same response. And you know, I'm uh, happy you know, that we have the chance to hear some of your reflections on your tenure as CEO at ThetaCare, uh, your your career and, and lessons learned. So um, thank you again for being willing to do that today. You bet. Happy to share. So, you know, there, there might be a few listeners here who have listened to, you know, every single podcast going back. And you know, I want to follow up on, um, you know, a couple, we've had a couple of conversations in the past, in particular episode 144 from, uh, boy, about five years ago um, for Anyone who hasn't listened to that, you can find that uh, at leanblog.org slash 144. And, and Dean, you talked to us about ACOs, accountable care organizations. And, you know, you said at the time you were doing an experiment, um, you know, 20% of the health system revenue. And I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on how that experiment played out over time. Um, what, what are some of your reflections on that? Um, well, we've learned a number of things. So um, the 20% experiment was really with the uh, Pioneer program. Uh, we did with Bellin uh, Health in Green Bay as a, a joint venture, so to speak. Uh, we did that from 2012, 2014. Um, we learned a lot. We were um, cited by Medicare uh, in 13 and 14 as their uh, highest quality, lowest cost ACO in the country. Um, so we were very proud of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then we set out 2015 uh, for a transition year, and we have continued now with NextGen in 16 and 17. Uh, so between that, uh, those pilots and our own employees, it's been about 20, 23% of our revenue stream in total cost of care risk. And, and what kind of organization is NextGen? Or can you maybe give a bit of background of, of how that ACO partnership works and, and what that meant yeah. for you and them? So, 
So NextGen is the next generation of CMMI's total cost of care risk platform. So the Pioneer has migrated to NextGen. Um, you know, we have an ACO with uh, physicians and ourselves. One of the things we've learned, though, is over the last five, six years, we had numerous conversations periodically with some of the large insurance companies. And they told us that they were piloting different forms of total cost of care risk with providers around the country. And that as soon as they were ready, they would be willing to talk to us and expand that to our, our platform. Um, in fact, that's never happened. So we're um, disappointed with that, and I'd say a little disillusioned with that, too, in that we, uh, we think that the uh, large for-profit insurance companies really do not have a sincere interest in, in sharing total cost of care risk with provider systems. Hmm. So, um, so for my imperfect understanding of all this, so NextGen was an evolution of, of the pioneer Yep. framework. And you said you originally partnered with Bell and Health, which was more of a, a primary care clinic organization. Is that right? No, they're an integrated delivery system like we are. They have oh, two okay. hospitals and, and employ physicians and have a lot of independent physician partners as well. Yep. Okay. And so that partnership, that ACO with them ended though, correct? Uh, that did. We transitioned it to each forming our own ACOs. Oh, okay. Um, but we still work together closely. In fact, we will anticipate in the next one or two months announcing a, a new joint venture uh, with a separate insurance company that we think uh, has very high potential to uh, deal with the uh, AAA issues that most of us aspire to achieve. And, and can you elaborate a little bit I mean, when you say you know, insurers, commercial insurers, you know, uh, generally, uh, you know, don't have interest in these shared models. What, what, what do you think is uh, the cause of that or some of their thinking on that? I'll give you a little bit of my background and then tell you what I think in sort of an unvarnished truth. Uh, in my perspective, it may not be true, but um, I started off as a family practice physician. Uh, four years into practice, I was the lead physician when we formed our own HMO, our own provider-sponsored health plan. We had 17 years and we sold that health plan. That was 13 years ago. Uh, what I believe to be the case is that um, large for-profit insurance companies are in business to make money for their shareholders. And although they talk a good game, about how they're doing things to hold down costs. The fact of the matter is they make a certain percent margin on average mm -hmm. off premium dollar. As the premium dollar goes up 6, 10, 14% a year, they make that percentage up a larger and larger revenue base. So they will deny this until the cow comes home but I definitely believe that they really are not as altruistic as they would claim to be. And that they, the reason they put in different mechanisms to reduce cost is so they can make more money. In fact, if they were to shift that total cost of care risk to providers, 
Then when providers redesign healthcare using lean and other strategies and improve the quality of care and reduce the costs, the provider systems would benefit financially from doing that work. Mm -hmm. Today, when we do great work and redesign things, the beneficiary of that is the insurance company. They get the profit from our labor. Mm -hmm. And they don't really want to change that because it's working well for them. Yeah. So why would they change that? I mean, I can't explain why else after five to seven years of conversations with insurance companies, why none of them have been able to follow through on what they claimed they were going to do in 2010, 11, and 12, right after the Affordable Care Act was passed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and one element of the Affordable Care Act, which I, I've already demonstrated through my questions, I'm not an ACO expert, I'm not an ACA expert, but you know, there's the, the one aspect of the law, the medical loss ratio, or it's sometimes called the 85-15 rule, uh, if I have this right, where the insurers have to spend 85% of premiums on care, and it seems like Boy, if I were running a business, I, I, you know, a larger pie um, benefits the insurer, um, and it seems like a disincentive to helping keep spending down, right? So, so what people don't talk about is what happens to that fifteen percent, mm -hmm. and most large national insurance companies are proud of the fact that their admin costs, their administrative overhead probably is between six and eight percent. So their profit margin then probably is seven to nine percent. Now mm -hmm. it can be you know covered up by all sorts of clever things that CFOs do. And you can cost them with R and D expense mm -hmm. and this and that and the other thing. But it's a significant profit margin on average. And you know, as the revenue enlarges, that 15% becomes a bigger and bigger number. So yeah. uh, I really don't think they have, you know, it doesn't benefit them if they were to have healthcare costs stay flat year after year after year, mm -hmm. they don't win. And if it's a capitalistic structure that we're in, I guess you can say you don't blame them because they're yeah. there to make a profit for their shareholders yeah and they're I, not there mm -hmm. to you know so yeah but that that sounds uh pretty jaded i suppose but i it's not intended to be jaded yeah. it's just intended to let's take away the the uh the the magic screen behind the <laughs> wizard of oz mm -hmm. and let's just call it what it is yeah well and and what you say makes sense and uh you know i put my mba hat on and um yeah, I mean, I, you know, figure a lot, a lot of times things are explained by systemic structures. I, I've, I've seen some analysis recently that, that talked about not, not just insurance companies, but pharmacy benefit manager programs and a lot of these structures that just have real disincentive to keep costs down. Uh, even though the pharmacy benefit managers would claim to somebody, we're helping you manage and keep those costs under control, but they seem to systemically make more profit off of higher pharmacy costs. Now, if you want to talk about that, <laughs> in about 2000, we brought um, our pharmacy benefit manager in-house to our health plan, and then we subsequently created a separate company from that PBM experience. And uh, that company is very successful, 
But we learned the dark secrets of the PPM business when we did that. Mm -hmm. Um, They told us that uh, it was incredibly risky to bring it in-house, and it was risky, and it was very difficult. And oh my goodness, how challenging that was. But what we found was that uh, the PBM we had used previously had consistently given us about a dollar per member per month of rebate. Um, and they would get that about nine months delayed. And we brought that in the house within one year. We were getting more than $5 per member month rebate. And we got it within 90 days. Hmm. So we were absolutely believers that they use that rebate to make a huge profit margin off of our work. You know? And, and so, that was in relation to Theta Care, the health system, not Theta Care, the employer, right? That was related to Touchpoint Health Plan, mm-hmm. which was owned 50 50 by Theta Care and physicians. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, um, I was the chief medical officer uh, helping uh, lead that organization. And that was one of the things that I worked on with other people to do. Mm-hmm. And so we rolled back the, the curtain behind the Wizard of Oz in the PBM industry. And uh, there are better ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, do you, what, what do you think? I mean, do you think what you experienced uh, is fairly representative of broader trends? I mean, if, if the Affordable Care Act remain, and who knows, by the time I have this podcast published, who knows <laughs> any of yeah. this. But let's say the Affordable Care Act remains the law of the land. Are, are there reforms or changes that that would be uh, helpful in this regard in terms of some of these in, incentives um, regarding ACOs, uh, the medical loss ratios, pharmacy benefit margins? Uh. Well, the way I try to explain this, Mark, is using sort of our principle, the principles of what we learn within Lean. So if you do something and you do an improvement event, you're usually very happy using the 80-20 rule. If you got 80% of it right, and I think that's what happened with the ACA. They got 80% of it right, roughly. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with the 20% that's not working so well? Well, you do a plan, do, study, adjust cycle. You study it and adjust it. Mm-hmm. So the logical thing to do with the Affordable Care Act is to keep the 80% that's working pretty well and identify the 20% that's not. And part of it is, you know, the exchanges are at risk in many communities. Well. They're at risk because what was feared by insurers has happened, which is young, healthy people have chosen to not buy health insurance and instead pay the penalty. Well, if the principle of insurance is that the healthy people help offset the sick people, just like car insurance, you know, of a car, someday you're going to be in a car accident, most likely. But you know that the nine years you're not in a car accident, you're your premiums are going to pay for somebody who had a car accident. Mm -hmm. And the reverse is true the year that you might have one. So the same principle applies to health care, except if you have a lot of the healthy people opt out, then then there are real losses for insurance companies. So a lot of the insurance companies are dropping out of of the exchanges because the way the law is written, it doesn't force the healthy people into the marketplace so that their premiums can be used to offset the, the people that are unlucky and unhealthy in any one year. Right. And it seems like the, the, the penalties, even though they have increased over time, are, are still 
apparently low enough to be bearable by a lot of people, right? And I, I don't know the details of that. I'm not an expert on that. But the, the principle is is that in play. Yeah. So that's that's what's happening. Yeah. All right. Well, Dean, thank you for being a guest and, and sharing some of your thoughts here about uh, bigger picture healthcare issues. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks so much, Mark. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.